This program is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The story of history is a ceaseless conversation between past and present. In his new book, American Dialogue, The Founders and Us, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Joseph Ellis focuses on the often-asked question, what would the founding fathers think? He examines four of our most seminal historical figures through the prism of particular topics using the perspective of the present to shed light on their views and in, in turn make clear how uh, centuries-old ideas illuminate disturbing impasse in today's political conflicts. He discusses Jefferson and the issue of racism, Adams and the specter of economic inequality, Washington and American imperialism, Madison and the doctrine of original intent. And through these juxtapositions, Joseph Ellis illuminates the obstacles and pitfalls, paralyzing temperate discussions of these fundamentally important issues. Joseph Ellis is author of many works of American history, including Founding Brothers, the Revolutionary Generation, which was awarded the Pulitzer Prize, and American Finks, uh, Sphinx, rather, uh, the character of Thomas Jefferson, which won the National Book Award. He lives in Amherst, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, Professor Ellis, uh, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. I understand you uh, recently retired from active teaching at Mount Holyoke. I did. About four years ago, I, I continued to teach at the Honors College at the University of Massachusetts here at Amherst, and then for one year at Williams. But um, I'm now uh, formally and completely retired. I miss the students. I miss the interaction. I don't miss grading papers and <laughs> uh, and uh, reading reading. Uh, exams. Yeah, I, I hear you there. You write about some of your students in the, in the introduction to this book uh, that uh, to illustrate that uh, you know the, the the past is not past, right? History keeps uh, changing. I, I, I was interested. Uh, you had a Chinese student who uh, right. Uh, she was a student from Shanghai who took a seminar with me on uh, John and Abigail Adams, and she ended up writing her research paper on. John's uh, draft of the Massachusetts Constitution. He single-handedly wrote the Massachusetts Constitution, which became a kind of model for the federal Constitution in terms of its emphasis on separation of powers. And um, and so I said, why are you doing this? And she said, because I intend to write the Constitution for China, or rewrite the Constitution for China. I said, well, you're not going to rewrite it because there isn't one, uh, but and she's back there now, um, uh, attempting to move uh, the uh, republic or whatever we call China now into a more democratic direction. Hmm. Uh, you quote uh, Peter Gay in, uh, from Style and History. History is always unfinished in the sense that the future always uses its past in new ways. Uh, it's it's always shifting. It is, and uh, I mean, as I'm a professional historian, card carrying PhD from Yale and all that, and. Um, and we're taught to believe that, as, as historians, that we're, we need to be completely detached and go back to the past um, in the same way that an anthropologist might go to Samoa and not try to impose, say, Dr. Spock's values on the indigenous peoples of, of Samoa. And, um, and that's, a, that's a worthy goal, and uh, it helps us avoid uh, cherry-picking the past just to, 
support the views that we want to have supported. Um, but I guess what I'm saying in this book is that at the end of a career, looking back, that detachment, while a worthy goal, is in the end an unattainable goal. Um, we're all looking at the past from the point of view of the present, um, and we cannot escape the values and convictions, whether we're consciously or unconsciously bringing them back with us. And that this book is an attempt to say, I'm going to go back and ask the questions that seem to be most resonant and relevant for our time. It's a troubled time in which Americans no longer are sure of what their destiny is. It's no longer manifest destiny. And um, and make a virtue of this um and I don't hope I'm, I hope I'm not imposing myself, but um, I'm being honest about, or trying to be honest about the fact that uh, we live in a troubled times, and perhaps if we go back there to the founding, uh, it might be a safe place where we can gather and learn to, to, to talk and argue. And, um, uh, and we need to learn to argue together. Um, I don't think we can do that very well now. We all occupy our bubbles and our apps and our various versions of Fox News or MSNBC. And the founders are uh, distinctive uh, because, in some sense, argument is itself the answer. That's what the Constitution really is, a framework in which we can argue. And um, so I'm probably going to upset some people, and um, and I hope not all people, um, but... Um, those are my my motives in writing this book. So we need to learn how to uh, you write. We in our divided America, we uh, currently are incapable of sustained argument. We need to get back to that. You say. Um, I was going to ask you why you think we're incapable. I, I, you, you talked about silos, and we're and we're separate in terms of where we actually get our facts and our news. Are those the main yes. factors you think? I mean, I, we're all guilty of that. I mean, you know, and. Um, and the Internet uh, increases that. You'd think the Internet would increase communication. In some sense, it does, but it also, you know, the apps there give us what we think. And that's how they're dev- designed to sell us stuff. And, um, um, that, uh, and I mean, I live in a section of New England that's one of the bluest regions of uh, in America. I mean, Amherst is sometimes called the People's Republic of Amherst, and... Um, <laughs> Uh, and in this world, I'm considered a conservative. Um, uh, but if I go down to uh, Mississippi, where my wife is born and raised, and we're going down there for Thanksgiving at Oxford, and um, I'm considered considered a flaming liberal, and um, so maybe I'm positioned to be able to stand between these two groups right now. I hope so. Hmm. I want to jump in and uh, and uh, talk about some of the uh, the founding fathers. Uh, and I don't is that a term they would? I think one of the strains of your work that through through themes is the you know the founding fathers. Uh, we need to restore some of their humanity. Some of their you know uh, we put them up in uh, you know literally in in statues and, and monuments. Um, right. They had foibles. Uh, they had natural. weaknesses. I mean, all new nations need mythical heroes. I mean, Rome had Romulus and Remus, and Britain had King Arthur. And these are fictional characters that allow a nation to tell a story about itself that is uh, semi-sacred and rises above the, the profane and, um, and the human. 
the bulk of my work over a 40-year career, Mr. Williams, has been to try to humanize the founders, to see them as imperfect creatures like us. Indeed, if they were gods, I mean, if the tongues of fire appeared over their heads in the Philadelphia Convention of 1787, what in heaven's name would we have to learn from them? Um, and um, so it is the imperfections of the founders as much as the perfections that endear me to them. That's one of the reasons I love Adam so much. And um, uh, and so there there's a... There's a need for us to recover. That. By the way, they are busy being dead. They're not coming forward to talk to us. Um, uh, people would ask me, well, what would Washington think about the Iraq War when I was on the road for a book on Washington? And, and I said he wouldn't know where Iraq was. And, uh, and we don't have time machines to bring him forward. What you can do is go back and read his own letters and correspondence and reach, and that's what I d- did in, on the biography of Washington, and try to see if there's any wisdom that's still relevant for us today. Um, and um, and I think that when people would press me uh, on Washington, you know, well, what really, you know, what do you think he would say about Iraq? I said, well, I think what he'd say is, how did we become the British? Uh, and that raises all kinds of questions of whether a country that was founded as an anti-imperial power uh, against the British Empire um, can itself become an empire. Um, there's always going to be a tension there for us. Um, and I think long occupations in foreign countries are not popular in the United States. They have a limited duration for that very reason. Um, and that for that reason, I think that... Um, it should guide our thinking as we think about Afghanistan and Iraq, about places that we wish to stay or not stay. Well, you write that Washington believed that America's unique origins meant our political values and institutions were not transportable. Or not as easily transportable as, well, the word that gets used in modern uh, discourse is American exceptionalism. And uh, that has multiple meanings for people. And at some level, it's belief that God takes care of women, children in the United States, and that we're the kind of chosen people. But in a more secular meaning, it, it, it is that we have invented the liberal order. We have become the first modern uh, democratic nation-state. They wouldn't have used the word democracy. They would use the word republic. Um, but that that is a, that is the model for the future. And when the Soviet Union collapsed in 91, 1991, it was assumed that you know this was going to dominate the rest of the world just because it was the right answer. And um, Washington said that America came into existence at a very distinctive and somewhat unique moment and had unique advantages, primarily the land to the west. Um, which was a bounty and a kind of trust fund. Um, and that for that very reason, the model that we have come up with politically is not going to be easily transportable to countries that lack those advantages and lack that history. For him, at the moment, that meant the French Revolution was not going to duplicate the success of the American Revolution. It would probably end up in some sort of tyranny, which, of course, is what happened with Napoleon. So that the assumption that we're unique leads to him to conclude that we shouldn't expect this model to work everywhere in the world. 
Um, and it's exactly the opposite of what contemporary American exceptionalists think. Yeah, that's certainly that, that's become the creed in, the, in modern times, right? Export. Yeah, democracy, yeah well, I think that the history since since the late twentieth century has been that what we expected to happen at the end of the Cold War hasn't happened. That instead of this being a kind of easily uh, transportable liberal order, that um, what we really are seeing is not order but chaos and anarchy, and um, and that especially in the Middle East. Um, and that um, that the presum- that in some sense the Cold War imposed a kind of moral compass that was easy for most Americans to identify with. It was the evil empire that was Soviet Union and communism, and then there was us, which was the United States and democracy and capitalism. And um, and the world hasn't moved the way we sort of thought it would. And um, uh, Francis Fukuyama wrote about this in 92 or 3 and said that, you know, that it was, he called it the end of history, you know, that was almost designed to provoke the gods, and that um, and it hasn't worked out as we had expected, and um, in our efforts to try to impose our order on the rest of the world has not been as easy or as successful as we had presumed, and we're sort of trying to figure out where to go from here. Um you should have had a major strategic rethinking at the end of the Cold War. You know, we'd built up this huge American military, and now the rationale for that was gone. So what should we do? Well, it didn't happen. We got into the Gulf War, and and there was no peace dividend. And um, oh, don't get me wrong, I'm not an isolationist. I don't, I'm not a believer that we can step back from the power that we have because we're simply too big, too potent, economically and militarily, but that uh, there's not been a reasoned conversation about what we should do in the world. Let's take a break when we come back. Uh, I'd like to, if, if we could, uh, Professor, go, go next to uh, John Adams, uh, who I, I know you have a special place in your heart for, for this. Um, yeah, he's my favorite guy. Yeah. Uh, you're, in fact, your book, uh, The Passion, Passionate Sage, right? Passion, uh, yep. I don't know, pugnaciousness. Yep. Um, and I want to talk about him. And uh, he foresaw, in fact, uh, he and he and Jefferson in those letters had a running argument over visions of America. And and as you write, uh, definitely the the I guess the the fear that uh, Adams had of inequality, at least in economic inequality, has yeah that's the vision that's that's come true. Uh, let's talk about him next. Um, the book is American Dialogue: The Founders and Us. From Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Joseph Ellis Moore following this break. One of the best-selling authors kind of ever, John Irving, author of The Cider House Rules, A Prayer for Owen Meany, and most famously, The World According to Garp. Here's the thing. John thought Garp would be out of date a year after he wrote it. He talks about how sad it is that it's still so relevant. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. This afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Each week on Undisciplined, we bring together two researchers from different fields to talk about their recent work. This week, we'll be joined by Karen Lloyd, whose research suggests that microbial dark matter may be all around us. And then we're going to be joined by Jacob Freeman, who studies the synchronous rise and fall of societies. The microbiologist and the human ecologist, that's Undisciplined, Friday at 2. 
program is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. You're listening to Access Utah. We're pleased to have with us uh, eminent historian uh, Joseph Ellis. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of uh, several books. Latest is American Dialogue, The Founders and Us. And he focuses in this book on the often asked question, what would the founding fathers think? Examines four of our most seminal historical figures through the prism of particular topics. And so he discusses Jefferson, the issue of racism, Adams, the specter of economic inequality, Washington and American imperialism, Madison and the doctrine of original intent. You can join the conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, so, Professor Ellis, um, as we said before the break, you have a special uh, place in your heart for John Adams. I was interested... I do. To, uh, I want to get to him in a second, but yeah. I heard the, the, uh, pro, the promotion you did, you're going to be talking to John Irving. Irving and I had offices next to each other at Mount Holyoke for two years, and when he was writing The World According to Garp, and he used to talk to me about what he was doing, and he had a statement that's relevant for me now. He said, Joe, every author could have entitled his every book great expectations. <laughs> and um, and this probably is part of the mentality I have for American Dialogue, and I need to be humble about it and uh, realistic. But uh, let's go forward with John Let, Adams. Uh, let's, what, uh, just one more. Uh, was he surprised by the success of GARP? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it was yeah. his first big, uh, big success. And uh, and he was, uh, he was hoping, but... Um, uh, it, it outdid all of his expectations. Yeah, yeah, great expectations. I like that. Yeah, that's well, you have to have yeah, that attitude, yeah. right? You have to put a book book out in the world. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. what we all hope for, and so seldom does it come true. Right. Um, I, I would I'd throw one other extraneous idea at you, Mr. Uh, Mr. Williams. That that I think the people in Utah, especially the Mormon population is predisposed to understand what I'm talking about in a way that a lot of other Americans are not, because I'm talking about the dialogue that goes on. It has multiple manifestations, but one of the manifestations is between rights and responsibilities. We're very big on rights, and we're not so big on responsibilities, I think. That's the side of the equation that needs to go up, I think. Hmm. And Mormons, because of their commitment to service... Their, their obligation to service and their missionaries as missions um, understand this. Uh, their lives aren't completely self-centered, and even in terms of thinking of the future and posterity, because they, the greatest genealogical papers in the world are in Utah because Mormons believe that they're going to go to a place where their ancestors are present, and there's a continuity between past, present, and future, they think that way, and that I want more Americans to think that way. I'm not a Mormon. I'm an ex-Catholic. Um, but, um, there's a, you know, George Romney created a, a, a health care program for this Commonwealth of Massachusetts, um, which took part of that, that we are a collective, and we have a responsibility to support each other and have a basic kind of basic form of health care. 
that's in place now. It was the basis for the Affordable Care Act. Um, and, um, and I think that thinking of the collective and not just of the individual is something that your listeners, more than most other Americans, can understand. Just uh, just one more, I guess, to, following you in that aside, um, which is not really an aside. It's you know one of the central themes of the book. Uh, how do you think we got that way? You you write that the founders would be surprised that uh, we've kind of devalued the responsibility side and in uh, and raised up right. the right side. How do you think we got we got there? What are the main factors now we got that that way? Um. Hmm. I think identity politics in the academic world, which I don't agree with, um, but I think that the big change happened in the early 70s when President Nixon did away with the draft. And I grew up presuming I had to serve and joined ROTC and went into the Army because I I didn't think I had a choice. And, um, And I've been teaching three generations since then, none of them grow up with the presumption they have any, any obligation to serve at all. And um, and I don't think it should be military service, but I'm in very much in favor of some form of mandatory national service. Now, that has absolutely no chance politically right now, but many of the things that I think we need to do currently have no chance politically. But we need to talk about them and make them possible. Um, but I think that uh, two or three or four generations of Americans have grown up presuming that they have no larger, uh, they're not part of something larger that they need to commit themselves to. And I think there's actually a latent hunger for that out there if someone will call them to that service. I think that, that a lot of young Americans want that, at least at some level. And um, But that uh, it's government can be not just them, government can be us. And um, and there is a larger sense that we're part of, and I think the Mormon religion enforces that in a way that that uh, other aspects of Protestantism don't. Um, and just to kind of finish this, um, uh, you write it's, it's kind of an epigram. You you say uh, about war, current war. It's not declared. Few have to fight, and no one has to pay, which explains why perhaps we we've, we've had so much war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, we go to the way we go to war in the Constitution is a vote, a full vote of uh, Congress. And that the last time we went to war that way was December 8th, 1941. We now go to war by just giving the power to the commander-in-chief. And um, that's not what the founders intended. Um, and um, uh, and we need to know at the start, well, what's, you know, what's this going to cost? And, uh, and I mean, um, I remember Eisenhower was asked how come in 1956 the highest tax rate in American history was almost 90%. He said, well, we fought a war. I, I was involved in that war. It created a huge debt, and we've got to do away with the debt. I mean, nobody would say that now. Um, and um, we just added $1.8 trillion to the national debt with an with a, uh, economic payout that gives – 82% of that $1.8 trillion to the top 1% of the population. Um, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. And that, that sort of moves us to your question about Adams, I think. Uh, before, we, uh, before we go to Adams, let me get an email in from a listener. This is from Glenn. Uh, Glenn says, hello, I've uh, found through many discussions, quote-unquote discussions, with my peers in the oil field that I'm a flaming liberal. 
very square peg in a very <laughs> round hole. I've also found that there are two sides to every argument, mine and the wrong one. <laughs> of course, I'm being facetious. That being said, in my opinion, I believe the political arguments that we encounter most frequently have devolved into positions which people uh, take personally. People, and I include myself in this at times, tend to take opposing viewpoints personally and deal with them according, accordingly by attacking back. If we could somehow change the dialogue into a more civil and less attached debate, we could actually find some healing in our politics. It seems that every debate between parties carries the same gravity between the two sides as when Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon and the Roman army, uh, and the Roman army with the Roman army. Both sides proclaim doom and gloom in the end of our republic. Second, I believe that there has been an upshot of arguments with, uh, quote, general to the particular style, end quote, heavy on the easily believable yet negative aspects with or without validity. How to clean up our language, I do not know, but it seems that this has evolved exponentially since the Reagan era. Thanks for the great topic today. Glenn, your friendly neighborhood liberal nut job in the oil field, he says. So thanks for that, Glenn. <laughs> Glenn, you and I have to have a beer together because um, I completely agree. And in some sense, it's the ultimate reason I tried to write, I began writing this book, which I began in 2014 before the words Donald Trump were abroad in the land in any meaningful sense. Um, uh, so it wasn't written in specific uh, reaction to the Trump presidency. Um, it was written in response to the very conditions that the, uh, the um, email suggests and to the, the oil demand suggests. And, um, and, and I could see that in my own work in, the, you know, in, in a very liberal college like Amherst or Mount Holyoke or Williams. Um, there were the politically correct answers were were so entrenched that you couldn't have a debate about them and um and there were students that said, well, we could talk about slavery because it was such a moral travesty that understanding how it could remain part of the American fabric after the founding um was just incomprehensible and not worthy of serious uh, discussion and um that's crazy and um but I think that's where we are and um and I'm trying to move us to another place, and I think that the man in the oil fields and I need to get there together. All right, we'll see if we can set that up, uh, Glenn. <laughs> um, another email has come in. This is from Georgia in Cedar City. Uh, good morning, it says Georgia. Would like to hear Dr. Ellis's comments on what role or place the founders saw for the indigenous tribes who were here and lived in the lands we wanted to claim. Um, I was just down in Atlanta last week. Nobody asked me that question. I'm glad he did. Um, the um, the founders, uh, to talk about them as a collective, recognized that the Native American population occupied land that they wanted for whites. And Indian removal was built into the founding. And Washington is the one figure among the founders who recognized that that was a repudiation of the values on which the revolution was purportedly based. And he and his old artillery commander, uh, Henry Knox, who at that time was Secretary of War, this is the beginning of Washington's presidency, attempted to avoid Indian removal by proposing a treaty with the Creeks which is right down there in the Georgia man's territory. They were occupying what is now western Georgia and most of Alabama. They tried to set up a series of Native American homelands 
where they would be recognized as separate nations, just as much of a nation as, say, France or Italy or, or England, and, um, and be protected. And the wave of dem- the demographic wave of settlement that was streaming across the Appalachians and into the Western, then Western territories would have to bypass these and that these homelands, there would be three or four of them east of the Mississippi, would eventually, over time, over the course of the next century, become states and be admitted to the Union as uh, as free American citizens. So there was an attempt on Washington's part to avoid what became genocide in slow motion. And um, it failed because they didn't have the power to, in, to enforce it mainly because, I'm afraid to tell this man in Georgia, the people in Georgia were the big offenders because they simply refused to obey the law and um, they set up a, a fake a company called the Yazoo Company to buy up all the, to confiscate all the Indian land. And, um, but that they, they, in the end, the Native American issue is one of the tragedies of the founding. Um, as the other big one, of course, is slavery. And that I think that you know that the Native American tragedy became a Greek tragedy. I mean, it was insoluble after Washington failed. Um, but there was one man, Washington, who, and he is of course the biggest and the most important. Is the single biggest failure in Washington's career, and he knew it, um, and he regretted it uh, throughout the rest of his presidency and into his brief retirement. There was a way to answer this this problem and avoid uh, what became our policy, which was Indian removal. And um, but, but, but in some sense, the reason it failed was democracy. You couldn't stop this flow of people that were pursuing their happiness, namely to get their own land. Um, and there were just an, there was a stream of uh, people coming across the mountains, thousands and thousands of them. By the time you get to the late 18th century, that was unstoppable. Thank you, Georgia, for that question. And keep the questions coming to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We're talking with Joseph Ellis. Latest book is American Dialogue, The Founders uh, and Us. So um, let's let's turn to John Adams. Later on, we'll talk about uh, Jefferson and, and, uh, and race. Well, John Adams, I was uh, one detail that I, I found uh, very interesting. Of course, really enjoyed the passionate sage. But um, he apparently admired... Washington, because of Washington's studied ability to stay silent, and Adams, Adams <laughs> right. couldn't stay silent. He was a very voluble man, and, yeah, and he, I guess pugnacious. He, had, he said he had the gift of silence, which of course Adams himself lacked completely. And um, and he would have been, uh, he would have smiled to say, if you go to the Washington Monument, there are no words on the Washington Monument. I mean, um, that um, he criticized himself, did Adams, for being so talkative and so combative and pugnacious uh, as, as he was, and that Washington's calm demeanor and his silence allowed people to read into him whatever they thought was right. And um, it was a gift that Adams lacked. And, um, I mean, he was he would just say things. It's one of the reasons I love him the most is because if you could bring him back, of course you can't, but if you could and sit him down and have a Sam Adams beer in some local Massachusetts tavern, he'd spill the beans. He'd tell you everything. And his diaries, I mean, Washington's diary, to make the point, 
uh, that Adams made. You know, you look at Washington's diaries, for, like the day he relieves government and retires from the presidency, and he's ending his 30-year career as a public servant. And what's he thinking? What's, he, what's going on in his head? And the diary says, um, April uh, 7th, 1797, a day like all days, 37 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> That's it. If you ask Adams the same question in his diary, and he talks not about the weather, but the weather in his soul, Mm. the raging bulls, he calls them, and the way he feels about things, and his his emotional as well as his rational thoughts. And um, uh, and, uh, Adams is uh, the most discernibly imperfect of the founders because we know so much about him. I like him because he's not iconic. Um, he's decidedly human. Um, and as you were referring to earlier, in his dialogue with Jefferson, uh, letters, 158 letters written between 1812 and 1826, um, they engage in a series of arguments, but one of which is whether or not freedom and equality are compatible ideals. We think of them as compatible, and Jefferson certainly thought of them as compatible. Um, and the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are free to pursue their happiness as they see fit. Adams basically said that if you allow that to happen, the marketplace will distribute goods and services unequally because we are not equal in terms of our ability. We're equal in terms of our rights, yes, but not in terms of our ability. And that capitalism, which is a term they didn't use, neither, by the way, did Adam Smith use, but that is that the free market is inherently unequal in the way it distributes goods and services. And that if you let it completely free, eventually you're going to get a plutocratic society. That is to say, unequal distribution of wealth, wealth gathered at the top, and the people at the top with the wealth will use that wealth to purchase the government. And that's what happened in the end of the 19th century called the Gilded Age. It happened as the agrarian society became an industrial society, as a rural society became an urban society. And Adam says that was what was going to happen. And the reason I think that's really relevant is that we're in a second Gilded Age. We are currently in a country that is, where wealth is very unequally distributed. We have a higher level of income inequality of any advanced democracy in the world. And so here is the society, America, the United States, that created the middle-class society. The Tocqueville saw in democracy in America as the wave of the future, this place where uh, equality of condition was given. And now we're no longer a middle-class society. Um, we're a plutocracy, um, and we're an oligarchy. And, um, and I think instead of, and Adams would say, you can't expect trickle-down economics to work or supply-side economics to work if by work you mean distribute wealth. It, wealth needs to be not top-down but middle-out. We need to have a robust middle class that is the center, centerpiece economically and therefore politically of the republic. And we don't have that now. Mm-hmm. And Adams is the only one of the founders that foresaw that, warned against it, 
and suggested we had to find a way to avoid it. Why do you think, um, you know, his vision was was much more prophetic than, than Jefferson's? Jefferson has mm-hmm. a memorial. You write that uh, Adams ought to have a memorial. Uh, he doesn't. What, right. why, do you, why do you think that is? <laughs> I, and, uh, if you mentioned Passionate Sage, at the end of Passionate Sage, I, uh, I, was, I testified uh, about that time before Congress, along with David McCulloch, to call for an Adams memorial somewhere on the mall and I said that it should be, first of all, it should be a, a, a memorial that had Abigail and John Quincy in it, too, so we get the family values people committed to it. But it ought to be located on the tidal basin at a location so that contingent on the time of day and the angle of the sun, Adams and Jefferson would take turns casting shadows across each other's facades. And um, not, no such memorial has been created at all. There's no memorial to John Adams in on the Tidal Basin or in the mall. And uh, there isn't, you know, there isn't Adams Library. I mean, that one of the wings of the Library of Congress is named after Adams. But that um, uh, Adams doesn't fit the iconic mold. Jefferson does. Uh, Jefferson tells us what we want to hear. Adams tells us what we need to know. Mm. I-, I wonder if uh, uh, casting my mind on this question, I, I, I came up with a theory. See if this, if you agree with this. Um, he, uh, uh, Adams, is so patently uh, human, right? He, we talked about that, yes. and yeah. so maybe harder to turn into a, a myth. This fiction that you talked yes. about. Yes, I mean he is, and he knew that, and but he kept saying, "Look, we're not gods. Don't make us into gods." Don't make us into these creatures, these mythical creatures. You know, the tongues of fire never appeared over my head at any moment in time. And if you want to know the true history of the American Revolution, it's argument. It's back and forth. We hated each other on occasion. It was a fight amongst us. And the secret of our success, in some sense, was the diversity of arguments and diversity of temperaments in the mix. For every Jefferson, who is an extreme idealist, there was an Adams, who is an extreme realist. And it, in some sense, the checks and balances we associate with the Constitution were present in the founding generation as well. And that generated the sort of uh, the dynamism of that, con- of that dialogue. And we've lost that now. Um, and, uh, and, and now if I say I think we need government to redistribute wealth, then somebody will say, well, you're a socialist. No. No, I mean, as Casey Stinkle said, you can look it up. Socialism is government ownership of the means of production. Neither Adams nor I is in favor of that. We're believers in the power of the market. But uh, there needs to be a social contract in which capitalism is allowed to be productive, but on the condition that the wealth is distributed so there is a robust middle class. And, um, and that's what and in order for that to happen, we have to recognize that government is us as well as them. You need Jefferson and you need Adams both together in the dialogue for the dialogue to capture the full comprehensive character of the founding. Let's take another break. When we come back, we'll, uh, we'll treat uh, with time remaining uh, Jefferson and, and Madison. 
I definitely want to talk about original intent, which you talk about uh, in, in the book here. And when we come back, the first thing we'll do is uh, treat uh, Joseph's uh, three questions. He had three brief questions in an email, so we'll get to that, Joseph. And you can email us as well, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. As we head to break, uh, Glenn in the oil field has written us back. He's talking about this idea of having a beer with Professor Ellis. He says, I'll buy everyone. We'll solve many of the world's problems in just one evening. <laughs> he says, I'm also a liberal beer drinker from right to left, Corona Light to Guinness. So uh, thanks. <laughs> thanks. We got, we got a plan there, uh, Glenn. Uh, more following this break. 16-year-old Frank Abagnale was struggling to make ends meet when he saw a flight crew and he had an idea. That's it. I could pose as a pilot. I probably could get just about anybody anywhere to cash a check for me. Thus began his career as a fraudster, music inspired by a con man, on the next Performance Today from APM. Tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Next time on Living on Earth, how to take a family farm near London back to the wild. Going from intensive management, where you're really managing the land to the nth degree, to just sitting back and letting go is a, is a massive mind swing. I'm Steve Kerwood, letting nature run her course, next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Heard on UPR Wednesday morning at 10. This program is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're spending the hour with acclaimed historian Joseph Ellis. Uh, his new book is American Dialogue, The Founders and Us. He says that we've lost the ability to argue. We need to come together to argue, as the founders did, in order to uh, move forward as a, as a society. Um, I want to get to uh, three brief questions from Joseph. Joseph has written us to upraxcess at gmail.com. You can as well, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, first question. In his farewell address, George Washington warned that all foreign entang- entanglements are temporary. How and why would George Washington agree to our, quote-unquote, permanent entanglement with Israel, asks Joseph. Well, yes, he's right. The, excuse me. The farewell address, which actually was never an address, it was never delivered, it was a written thing, and actually Washington didn't write it. Uh, Alexander Hamilton did, but it was Washington's thoughts that he was expressing, no question. And at, and Washington foresaw at least a full century in which the foreign policy of the United States need to look west and not east, not across the Atlantic, but across the Appalachians. And um, and the primary function of the next century was to consolidate the continent. And that um, that that meant steering clear of the kind of entanglements in European affairs that would uh, stymie American development. Um, that time ended in the late 19th century with the end of the frontier and with the movement of America uh, economically to the forefront of the world. And um, and in that sense, 
isolation became anachronistic at that moment in time. And, um, I mean, any foreign policy vision that lasts for a full century is pretty darn good. And, um, and the firewall address was read, was mandatory reading in the Congress on an annual basis on Washington's birthday for almost a century. Um, the attempt to recover isolationism after World War One, when we first became involved in European affairs, Wilson as president, to make the world safe for a democracy, allegedly, and that war was regarded as misguided by Americans afterwards. And, um, and we went back to an isolationist posture between 1920 and 1940. Um, that was a mistake. Um, and it allowed totalitarian regimes in Germany and Japan and Italy to develop and led to the inevitability of World War II. So Washington's vision is no longer relevant in the direct sense of the term. But Washington was ultimately a realist. He's the first, he's the founder of American realism in the, of that tradition in foreign policy. That is a realistic assessment of the interests of the United States based on geography and, um, and on uh, the economic power. And so I think it would be an interesting question to say, well, what would Washington say now? And I would then, based on having read all his papers, say that Washington would say that we cannot avoid being the superpower. We are a superpower by definition uh, in terms of our economic prowess and our military prowess. We have we are the more most powerful military power in the world ever. Neither Rome nor Britain, in their heyday, had the same level of uh, unequal power that the United States possesses. You can't walk away from that. The world is too connected. It is no isolation is is physically impossible. Distance now makes no difference. Um, but that we have to be careful about what we choose to commit ourselves to. We have to decide what to do and what not to do, places to intervene, places not to intervene. And high on my list of places not to intervene is the Middle East. Um, the only priority we have in the Middle East, and the, the email of man is right about this, is the preservation and, uh, of Israel. Um, I don't think that oil is any longer a relevant concern. I think we now produce enough ourselves, but I think that um, that the decision about what we commit to and what the ways in which we do that cannot be isolationist, but we cannot be the policemen of the world either. Let me just uh, uh, read the points two and three of Joseph, then, and then uh, maybe a very brief response from the professor. I, I do want to get on to original intent. All right, I'll be briefer, I promise yeah. you. Oh, no, no, that's, uh, I just, uh, I, I'm anxious to get on to original intent. Um, so number two, the founding fathers uh, hated uh, King George's power to war at all, war at will, including against the U.S. colonies. The Constitution gives sole power to Congress to declare war, parenthetically directly elected representatives, says Joseph, and forbade delegating said power. NATO gives foreign governments the power to require the U.S. to wage war. How and why would the Founding Fathers agree to the NATO Treaty and War Powers Act? The number three, um, I'll read this, was the comment, Woodrow Wilson elevated elevating, uh, quote-unquote, democracy as the end-all goal for the world's peoples has caused more innocent bloodshed than any other meme, says Joseph. I think that the latter point has been proven true in the post-Cold War years. Um, making the world safe for democracy is, is not an easy chore, and 
thus far, it seems fairly clear that certain sections of the world are not interested or ready for democracy and unwilling to think seriously about it. Um, I think that the, the first point is that we have been going to war for over 50 years in a way that the founders did not intend. We've been delegating the responsibility to a single person, the president. Part of that is due to the nuclear age, at a time when the possibility of nuclear attack meant that there was only minutes to, to make decisions, uh, gave the, the president uh, very, you know, dictatorial power because you, you, you needed it. Uh, to be able to make a decision if, let's say, a nuclear launch came from the Soviet Union. Uh, I think that there are many, many occasions, however, and let's say, you know, the wars in which the Congress has surrendered its power simply out of cowardice, simply out of an unwillingness to take a leadership position um, on a decision that will involve many American lives and a great deal of treasure. Um, Congress has abdicated the responsibility that the Constitution gives it to make war. And, um, and if we are going to go to war, um, and in what constitutes a war? I mean, is Afghanistan a war? I don't think it is. It's, it's like, and, it, and um, in the full sense of the term, and um, that we, in my judgment, need to allow the, we, to, persuade the Congress that it is responsible. That is not going to be easy to do. And um, we go to war too easily. And as, I, as you quoted from the book earlier, um, nobody has to go, nobody has to pay. Um, and uh, in that kind of context, we surrender all of the tough decisions um, and allow ourselves to get involved in places like Vietnam and Iraq, which proved to be unwinnable. We just have a couple of minutes left. I, I do want to get into originalism. You, you, this section on James Madison, uh, let's see, quoting, mm. quoting here, um, that originalism rests on a fiction, the idea that there is a single source of constitutional truth back there at the founding. That's a, that's a very critical question, of course. Uh, just have a, about a minute uh, left for this. You want to comment on that uh, in a minute? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, I think that the minute version. I'm suggesting that the doctrine of originalism is a fiction. That is, it's based on a fiction. It's based on the presumption that there was a moment back there in 1787 when a direct connection with the divine occurred between the members of the convention and some, some deity, and that therefore the truths discovered there were eternal truths, unchangeable, and that the values and mentality of that time are what a Supreme Court justice now is supposed to try to recover. Um, and in my judgment, the, the central assumption on which that rests is historically ridiculous. There were no, there were no canonized saints back there that had direct access to the divine. But that the originalism, as it's currently as it's currently practiced by five members of the court, um, is really a doctrine to limit federal, federal jurisdiction over corporations and to serve the interest of the plutocracy. Um, that's what it does. And I do an extended analysis of the decision on the Second Amendment that will undoubtedly make a lot of uh, NRA members unhappy. Um, but you don't really have Second Amendment rights. You have Scalia rights. You have NRA rights. Um, 
the real meaning of the Second Amendment was that national defense should be in the hands of state militia rather than a federal army. And the full implications of the Second Amendment were were written into law in 1792 in the Militia Act. The Militia Act said that every uh, white male uh, between the ages of 18 and 45 must purchase a musket and what they call an outfit, meaning they need to be ready to serve in the state militia. The ultimate meaning of the Second Amendment is not that you have a right to own a gun, but that you have an obligation to serve. Um, quite different, I, I think, than most people understand. Um, and I, I, I would like to engage you know, with somebody in the kind of dialogue I suggest, but the following. I will agree that you have a right to own a gun if you will agree that I have a right not to be shot. Now, if we begin with that, where do we go? And I think we can reach some compromise positions there that are that are sensible. Um, but the current debate, um, uh, the NRA believes that any restrictions on any form of gun ownership, including automatic weapons and military-style weapons, and any restrictions on uh, ownership, um, is itself a, you know it's an unlimited right. Um, and there are no unlimited rights. Even the right to free speech, you can't shout fire in a crowded room. But that. We need to reestablish a meaningful and sensible dialogue on this point, especially at a moment in time when um, every 15 minutes somebody in America gets shot. Um, And every week we see a massacre. Um, we'll have to uh, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, but uh, and, and uh, obviously the dialogue will hopefully continue. And uh, we didn't even get to uh, Jefferson and race. You'll have to read it in the book. Very interesting there, and an interesting tidbit. You'll have to read this in the book. Uh, Joseph Ellis says the founders would be surprised. We still have the Electoral College. That's interesting. You have to go to the book for that. The book is American Dialogue: The Founders and Us. Joseph Ellis has joined us. Uh, a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and UPR.org.